Well, um, I'm very weepy this morning. I don't know what's going on with that. Leaking here a lot. You, go, you got some Kleenex. I got Kleenex. Yeah, I mean, that's how bad it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I think for the first time it um, could be um, for the first time. Just really broken over sin in the world, sin in my life, sin in the world, and um, and you know what we need to do about some things. And so, anyways. Um, today we are on the third lesson in um, Psalm 119, and we're going to be in, um, I would call it the G, Jamil is what it is, but um, Psalm 17 through 24. But before we get started, well, first I want to hit just one thing. Last week we talked about how can you keep your way pure, and then the week before that we talked about having an enviable life. You know, do you live a life in such a way that people want to look at you and say, hey, I want to be like that. I want to live a life like that. I want to have that peace. I want to have that joy. I want to have that faith. Not I want to have that car. I want to have that house. I want to have that outfit. You know, that's the kind of, you know, and that's okay if we have all those things. But um, I think it's important also that we, um, or more important, that people can look and say, hey, you've got peace. You've got joy. You've got compassion. You've got kindness. Um, And so... Um, part of, I think, part of the reason why I'm so greedy is, and I think I shared a little bit, did I talk a little bit about the biblical worldview last week? I mean, it, I probably did. It's, um, I've read, I just finished reading this book called Think Like Jesus. It's written by George Barna, and um, it's really talking about having a biblical worldview. And um, Ellen and I went to dinner one day this week, so she's already heard this listen, so you can just ignore it. <laughs> yeah, but... Um, but it talks about a biblical worldview is that you answer that if you were to you have you believe the Bible is truth um, that it is an absolute there is absolute moral truth and then basically some basic tenets about you know Jesus is born of a virgin it was substitutory death I mean just statements of faith that most um, mainline evangelical churches all would have those basic statements of faith and um, in America today um, of Christians. Um, People who, who call themselves born-again believers. Not just people who even call them, people that call themselves born-again believers. 9% of them have a biblical worldview. 20 years ago, 40% had a biblical worldview. The projection is in another 20 years, 1% will have a biblical worldview. Like Cambodia. Yeah. 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 That's where we're headed. And they... And, and so, okay, so what? So, you know, so, you know, I'm saved, and what is that really... This is what it has the difference. And this is... And I'm... Right. Of those that 91% who call themselves believers and do not have a biblical worldview, their life styles and their life looks no different than to non-believers. Than non-believers. Their lives look exactly alike. There is no difference between their lives. And I was um, visiting with some friends yesterday afternoon and and, um, and one has a lot of mercy, and I, I know I don't have a lot of mercy. Maybe that's probably where the tears are coming from because it's kind of get because it just gives me mercy. But you know, Jesus Himself said, "Either be hot or cold, I will throw you up if you're lukewarm. Either be hot or be cold, but lukewarm is awful." And so we have, I mean, statistically, we just have to say a bunch of the folks who come in this church have no desire to live this out. Have no desire to live this out. And it's nobody's, there's, you know, it's their fault, it's our fault, it's the teacher's fault, it's the pastor's fault, it's the culture's fault. There's a lot of reasons we can blame on what that is. 
He talks about having a biblical worldview as having the answers to these seven questions, biblical answers. Does God really exist? Of course, the answer is yes. What's the character and nature of God? He's loving and kind, but he's also a judge. How and why was the world created? You know, he's the creator. He's the one that created, which gets a whole mess. You know, we have that. Because if you want to have evolution, because then I have no, I mean, then I don't have anybody to be accountable to. But the earth was created to glorify God. That's why it was created. What is the nature and purpose of humanity? We were called to worship God and have fellowship and relationship with him. What happened after? What happens after we die? There is a real heaven. There is a real, I mean, there is a real, yeah, heaven. There is a real hell. What spiritual authorities exist? I mean, there are demons. There are angels. And they are battling against us and for us. And what is truth? What is bottom line absolute truth? Because if you have no, if you believe that there's no moral truth, no absolute truth, then it's, that's anarchy. And 70, 80 years ago when we thought there was no truth, or if you thought there was no truth, there was at least a culture of morality in our society. But regardless of how you might feel about the president, I don't think it's appropriate for the president to say, I'm going to kick some ASS on, in a speech, talking about what's going on with the oil spill. I don't think it's appropriate on the headlines of the Houston Chronicle City and State right now today, the headlines today. It says lies, damn lies. And that's what it says. I don't even know what the rest of it said, but that's what I was like. There is that a culture of morality. So then, when, then anarchy does come in. It is whatever. Hey, if it feels good for you, do it. If it doesn't feel good for you, don't do it. Two more points, and I'll be done reading this. I won't be done preaching, I'm sure, but I'll be done Whoops. reading this. And I really wish this chapter was the first chapter, but it's the last chapter. And so I'm going to encourage, this is one of the Barnard's books, I mean the Master's Program books. I'm going to encourage people to read chapter 13 first. Because listen to this. This is why it matters. Every Wednesday, my two daughters attend a program at a nearby church. They have met many nice children there, have learned many wonderful lessons and principles, and have been loved and nurtured by the teachers in the program. To the credit of the program, both girls look forward to the midweek meetings. Unlike me, both of our girls have a terrific memory and can rattle off Bible verse after Bible verse. Recently, our oldest daughter won an award for being the most proficient student in her grade level at Bible memorization. They made the presentation of the award at a special event, giving her a commemorative plaque and a few prizes in front of the entire complement of students. She basked in a moment of glory, smiling broadly. As her peers cheered her accomplishment, she was duly proud of her hard work and the recognition it had brought her. Yet within an hour of returning home, after the memorable evening, she was fighting over some insignificant matter with her younger sister. This struck me as incongruous with what had happened earlier in the evening and the impact that scripture knowledge should have on her behavior. I sat down with our award winner and asked her some questions. What was the verse she recited from Luke 10? Without hesitation, she reverted to the mechanical mode. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Good. A few weeks ago, you memorized Matthew 7, 12, I reminded her. What did that verse say? Like a bullet out of a rifle, she responded, do for others what you would like them to do for you. Good job. That's the verse. How about Matthew 5, verse 44 and 45? Tell me those. She paused for a minute, flipped through her mental file box of verses before grinning and recited the words, but I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in Heaven. I stared at her for a few seconds, waiting for the light bulb to go on. I made a face as if to say, well, what does that mean? But there was no sign of recognition. 
She just stared back at me, waiting for the next question to ace on the spur-of-the-moment verbal exam. Honey, you just proved to me, you just proved to the world that you know a lot of what God taught us in the Bible. And we've been learning that the Bible isn't like any other book. It's God's lesson for us on how we need to live a right Live a life that is in a right way that will please him and is best for you. The verses you memorize should affect what you do, right? She nodded dutifully, waiting for the next verse to call out. <laughs> so think about the three verses you just told me. What do they have to do with how you treat your sister? What's the connection between what God is teaching you in those verses and how you two should get along? Her eyes narrowed a bit as she tried to determine if this was a trick question. After mumbling some nonsensical reply, she sat quietly awaiting the next quiz question. She was a champion at recalling scriptures, but she had no clue how those verses related to her behavior. I don't fault my daughter for knowing Bible verses, but failing to understand them and integrate them into her life. I have been derelict in my responsibility as her spiritual overseer to help her connect the dots. She had the raw material at her disposal, but no blueprint or coaching that helped her know what to do. She could answer, what does the Bible say? But she does not, was not able to answer, so what? Most of the adults I meet at church have been attending for many years. They could probably answer the seven worldview questions adequately, but few of them have a biblical worldview. Although they are decades older and have had more experience than my daughter, they are no more spiritually mature. And in our churches today, I don't want, I don't want to just have more Bible knowledge. <laughs> I just don't want to be able to quote more verses and just memorize more so I check them off. I want it to change my life. I want it to transform my life. I don't want to know the word so that I can tell somebody else what to do. Because I can do that. I can use it as a sword. Not as a scalpel, but as a sword. I want us to know the word so we're transformed. I won't read them all to you, but he lists, lists about um, he lists 13 different character traits. That really, hey, how are you doing in your faith maturity? How are you doing in your trustworthiness? Do people, do you do what you say and say what you do? Are you, do you promote truth? Do you have wisdom? Do you have sensitive conscience? Virtuous morality. I'm doing okay on the first six. And then number seven, do you have a godly demeanor? Interaction with people that is consistently, consistently sincere, kind, generous, forgiving, loving, respectful, and encouraging. Okay, I'm not doing good there. Control temper. I do okay on that. Appropriate speech. Saying things that, I'm like, okay, appropriate speech. I'm thinking, I got this. I'm not cussing anymore. <laughs> then I read the paragraph that follows it. Saying in love and avoiding words that provoke anger, mistrust, or negative perception of others. Avoiding abuse of God's name. So, okay, I don't always speak things in love, and I don't always do things that are encouraging. Do I have a loving heart? No, I don't have a loving heart. I do not have a loving heart. I want to have a loving heart. Proper value, servanthood, and humility. Okay, those are checked. I can, I'm doing okay on those things. When I read that chapter, it's like, okay, this all makes sense, the first 12 chapters. And I really, it is my heart's cry. And, I, you know, when I was talking to my friend yesterday, I'm like, if they're just going to come to sit and soak, and then you're just going to go home, you know what, in some ways I don't want them to come. I don't want them to come. And she's like, well, Becky, you know, if they sit and soak long enough, then there's going to be transformation. I'm like, I know. I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is on that. But I guess, um, and that's really tying into even what we're teaching and even this very first lesson, the very first point of this lesson, is that, um, you know, Christ died to give us life and life abundantly. And I think if we just live lukewarm and if we just live mediocrity and we don't really have this Bible change our lives and make decisions for us, 
the decisions are made, all we got to do is know what the principles are for us, then we've wasted his death on the cross. Yeah, we're getting into heaven, but oh my gosh. Have we wasted so much time along the way? So on that encouraging note, let's turn to Psalm 119, 17 through 24. Let me read this to you. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit, sit, sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counsels. So the first one is we like bounty. That's a good word, bounty, B-O-U-N-T-Y. We like bounty. Verse 17, deal bountifully with your servant. Don't we all want the Lord to deal bountifully with us? Generosity, liberty, abundance, plenty. I want lots of his mercy. I want lots of his favor. I want lots of his grace. And the thing is, God does do that. In that first verse, John 10, 10, he came to give us abundant life. I just want to make sure I quote it right. I've quoted it a hundred times. But John 10, 10 says this, and I think it's interesting. I just recently noticed this. This is pointed out to me. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and life abundantly. And there's, so there's that conjunction. You can't have life. I mean, I think it's what he's saying is, I've come to give you life. Here's life. Salvation comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and through that you will have eternal life forever. But then you can also have life abundantly. And it's the second point. And I think there's a lot of people, there's a whole lot of people that are saved, and they're going to glory, but they don't live an abundant life. They don't live in plenty. They don't live in, a, in the generosity and the liberty of, of Christ, of what he's provided for us. And I'm not in any way, you know, I'm not a prosperity preacher, so I'm not saying that in any way. I mean, you know, because what's the beginning of this? I think if you're holy, you're going to be happy. It has nothing to do with, you know, whether you drive a Rolls Royce or not. But I also think on the same side, that's not not available to you. I mean, God, if you can handle a Rolls Royce, then God will give you a Rolls Royce. You know, I probably can't handle a Rolls Royce. That's why I drive a 2001 Maxima with 125,000 miles. Maybe if I'd work on some of these other areas, I might be driving a Rolls Royce. But, but I'm not driving a Rolls Royce. Or your husband. Or my husband might. He might give it to you. He might give it to me through my husband on that for sure. But do we have that abundant life, that overflowing abundancy? And that's the kind of life I want to live. Do we just live mediocre and kind of go through, you know, Sunday to Sunday, paycheck to paycheck, moment to moment, and just live on the, 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 the dregs of what's available to us? Or do we live in that fullness that's available to us, that you can walk in peace and walk in contentment and not walk in... Con- I mean, I, I'm just... T- I mean, just... I mean, this, and that's probably tears because I'm convicted too about, I, mean, I want to control things, I want to work things, I want to manipulate things. And I got this daddy in heaven who flung the stars in the skies with his fingertips that is just waiting to bless me. I love this. Second Samuel, that's the second point. What more do you need? Second Samuel. Goodness gracious. I love that. I mean, I could spend... Of course I could because I spent so long on just five verses. I could spend years just studying 2 Samuel 12, 7, and 8. And um, this is, we talked about Nathan's last week, I think. You know, Nathan's rebuking David here. 
and he's just told the story of, um, you know, this rich man has all these sheep, and he goes to the poor man who just has one little wee sheep, and slaughters that to feed his, his folks. And he says, and David gets all mad, and he's like, you know, that rich man, he needs to be paid back four times what he took away. And Nathan says to him right here in verse 7, he says, you are the man. And it's a very interesting side note on this. Four sons were killed. The very first son that was born to Bathsheba here, and then the following next three sons in order were all killed. Because um, he, he put his own judgment on himself. He put his own payment on himself. So he's got to repay four times. And he said, you're the man. But listen to God's grace and mercy. Thus says the Lord the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's houses and your master's wife into your arms and gave you the house of Judah. And if there was, if this was too little, I would add to you so much more. He said, I would have done more. For, what, what did you want? What more do you want? What more do you want? I would have given it to you. I would have given it to you, but you went in your own ways. Which is a whole other teaching. You did your own thing. You walked your own path. You... You weren't being the king that you needed to be and working in the army. You were getting settled and content and looking at somebody else's wife. You didn't walk in my ways. But if, what do you need? And he's like saying to me, Peck, what do you need? Don't do it through conniving. Don't do it through manipulation in relationships. Don't do it through, through lack of integrity and in, in, in work. What do you need? I mean, what do you need? Gertz, what do you need? May, what do you need? Wendy, what do you need? Vicki, what do you need? God's got it in plenty, in bounty. He has it available to us, and it's in Christ. It's all available in Christ. Acts 17, 28 says, in him, in him we have all we need for life and breath and godliness. That's not what it says. In Him we have our what? I mean, I'm going to go to him. Acts 17. We have life and godliness in him too, but that's not this verse. We live and breathe and have our being is what it says. For in him we live and move and we have our being. In Christ alone, we live and breathe and have our being. We're able to get up and walk. We have, you girls have great abundancy, great bounty. I parked over at the Marquis because that's where I'm supposed to park. <laughs> so I parked over at the Marquis Marque and we pulled out and um, there's a guy that was severely um, disabled, um, at least paralyzed from the waist down from what I saw, and he had some movement of his hands, but they were very crippled, and he was in an electric wheelchair, and he had like a C&I dog, or maybe just a partner dog, and it had a kind of, the dog had a backpack on, and so, you know, obviously that's his buddy that helps him, you know, and the guy had, and I, there was just the bus driver and I in the car, and, and you could, we both were looking at him, and I thought, I ain't got no problem. I ain't got no problems. I can see, I can hear, I can breathe. I mean, I can even see without any contacts or anything. I got LASIK, praise the Lord. I can touch, I can experience. I slept in a bed. I opened my closet. I got more clothes than I could wear in a year. I don't have any need for anything. I got money in the bank to live for a long time. I ain't got no problems. I ain't got no problems. Where are you experienced bounty? 
when we start getting in our messes and our funks, and we do, we just need to go back and say, where I got bounty? I mean, really, guys, this book right here, and I don't have to do a Proverbs 13, 14, and 15. I mean, 30, 14, and 15. I preach on it all the time. This is bound. If all we had was this, girls, if all we had was this, we'd be set. We'd be set. The rest of 17 says this, and I think this is important. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. So God gives us bounty freely. But you know what? He gives it to us. It's like, you know, it's a little two-way street here. He really wants to bless us so that we will live his word. We, we, it really, I think, in some ways, he wants us to be without excuse. You know? Oh, no excuses. You got everything you need. What do you need? I got whatever you need. Okay, now just walk in my way. You know? Walk in my ways. That you may live and keep my word. Number two. Number two. We like beauty. I'm just kind of working with my bees here, so work me with me on this one a little bit. I need to be on this. What was C? All is in Christ. I don't know what, my, what the one is. All is in Christ. If you, if you feel like in some areas of your life that there's not abundancy, then figure out how to bring Christ into that place. Figure out how to bring Christ into that place. Um, if you don't feel like you're experiencing in relationships... And figure out how to make him be your friend and the husband and the lover of your soul. If you don't think you're experiencing Christ in abundance, if you don't think you're experiencing abundance and worth, then figure out how Christ to bring Christ in there. If nothing else, you just softly play the Word of God on the CD in your office. You know, figure out how to bring Christ where. Start praying for all your coworkers on a daily basis. You want to get loved? They'll do it. So number two, we like beauty. We like be open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Beautiful, fantastic, wonderful things out of our law. Beauty is a combination of qualities such as shape, color, or form that pleases the aesthetic senses, the intelligent intellect, and moral senses. You know, I think that there is nothing wrong with appreciating beauty. I mean, there's, and whether it's an art form, whether it is nature, I mean, that's the one thing that I hate about living in the city is just really it's hard to experience beauty in nature. I did. I mean, I only just went to Brookshire. I mean, I mean, I went 30 miles. I mean, 30 minutes out yesterday to um, Hunt Retreat, which is a great place that we have at the church, and just was outside for a little bit. And you could see the open sky and the cow and the horse and just open lands, and it's just experience is beauty. Um, and we need to experience and see that beauty and know what it is and walk in and understand there's beauty in His Word. Beauty in His Word. The third thing is I think that we like boundaries. Verse 19, I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. We are sojourners. <coughs> and we like to have boundaries. The story is told of a, um, I told this before, daycare center, and they did some research. And in the backyard behind the, the center, um, there was, it was wooded all the way around, pretty far back, about 50 feet. It was wooded to a large, large backyard area. And they told the kids that range in EA for from, you know, four to, you know, I guess probably about nine, I think is what they were doing, that they had full freedom in the backyard. In the backyard. You can go as far as you want, you know, all the way to the tree line. You can go as far as you want all the way to the tree line. And the kids went and play in the backyard. When, when they would go and play in the backyard, they would probably only go about ten feet away from the house. They really were, they didn't go all the way to the edge, all the way to the line. And um, then they put up the boundaries. They put up a fence all the way 
in, even some parts into a little bit into the fence, into the forest. And the kids, they went all the way to the forest. I mean, they all went all the way in. They went as far out because they could. They felt safe in the boundaries. And um, I think that's, I mean, it's, it's for me, it's boundaries. I love having boundaries. We know what our, we expect. What are some of the biggest frustrations, especially if anybody that works or has staff? What's your biggest expect, biggest frustrations? It's expectations. Either you haven't been given clear expectations or you haven't clearly communicated expectations about one of those. We don't have these boundaries, this little box that comes in the thing. And we like, I like boundaries. I don't, I will kick against the goad probably sometimes. And the older I get, the less I kick. Um, I don't think it's, uh, you know, I think I've just maybe because I've been broken a little bit more on that. But we like to have boundaries. Psalm 84, 5 in the, um, um, in the NIV talks about that we're strangers in this foreign land. We're strangers. We're aliens. We need boundaries. The Bible is our guide to draw that. Blessed are those whose strength is in you who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. We're on a pilgrimage, and we need a guide. Um, the ESV talks about they set their hearts on Zion. You know, the holy, sacred city. are heading that way. Our hearts are set on there. And the, and the word of God gives us that. The word of God is that guide that we need. Put in his hand at the blank. He is the guide that we need to do that. And, of course, the questions we've got to ask ourselves is, where do we need some boundaries in our life? Where do we need boundaries? Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, where do we need boundaries? I was counseling a... With a, or not counseling, I don't, I don't know if I counsel or not, but I was listening to this one girl who, um, she's in her 20s and she really doesn't, I mean, she reminds me a lot of me in some ways and just no boundaries, you know. I mean, just tell everybody everything about anything. I mean, you know, I mean, we've, you know, I don't know if we've all been there, but we've at least experienced somebody else who, who does that. And, you know, and then so she just shares her heart and then these people, you know, push away because they're like, this girl is crazy, you know, and it's like, okay, you don't have to tell them everything at first, okay, you know, and um, it's like, you got to get, you got to learn boundaries, got to learn boundaries, um, uh, Townsend, what's his first name that does the boundaries Bible study, um, yeah, there's a great Bible study about boundaries and having boundaries at work, it's very interesting, I think, and again, because all of us are career women here, I think, and um, uh because of our the Peter Townsend, thank you. It's driving me crazy. That's okay. Isn't that a rock star too? Is that part of the thing too? I don't know. I met somebody, the father of the family, whose name was Michael Bolton. I'm like, okay, come on. You know. <laughs> um, the uh, in that book, boundaries, it talks about uh, in the work environment and, and uh, how we need to have boundaries in the work environment. And it really goes back to the demise of the family culture and our families, how they've fallen apart in America today. And um, those kind of emotional needs that were met for validation, for significance, for self-worth, that really are established in the home, have not been established, do not happen. And so people go to work at 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, needing, desperately needing those emotional things to be met. And so they try and get it met at work. And so you're... You either have a supervisor that enables that and feeds into that, you know, or, or you have one that's not, and then there's conflict because they're expecting an adult response because you're in an adult situation, but really it, they're giving you a childlike response. Does that make sense? I, I should have brought it and really read that to you. I think it's just a really great thing about how we need to understand that our validation, our self-worth, our um, who we are is not wrapped up into what we do at work and our success and failure at work. Ellen. 
you know, yeah. to, you know, to get out of the word, this is where the boundaries are. Well, absolutely. You yeah. know, we get outside the boundaries of what the word says, and God can't protect us out there. Yeah, it's you know, and uh, we don't know the word. We don't know what the boundaries are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really this in this book. Think like Jesus really hit on. We have to study the word. Yeah, we have to know the word. You know, and and then we've got to apply the word. We've got to apply the word. Um, and that uh, just knowing it's not, we just get head knowledge in that. The Pharisees knew the word, you know. But it's interesting that Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees, you, it's because you don't know the word that you, that you mess up. You err because you don't know the word of God. Because they really don't know the word, and I think it was really the capital W word in the sense of Jesus himself. They don't know his heart. You know, we, we so often think that, you know, people don't want to come to Christ or make a decision for the Lord because they think, well, I'm going to get things taken away from me. You know, and it's like, yeah, but aren't those things killing you? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, in some ways, yeah. I mean, you know, no, probably Christ would not really validate your illegal drug use. Uh, you know, I'm just saying. And I'm, but I'm, how's that working for you? You know, I counseled with. Um, I just had a, I had a lot this week. I think on Friday night, I, you know, was kind of set up in this scenario to to kind of share my testimony with somebody else, and um, and because this person really is in a mess. She doesn't know it, and that was the problem. So it didn't really, it went over like lead bricks, you know. She's like, I don't need that. Life's great, you know. And I'm like, okay, you know. I mean, this is the classic line. I'm 21, and I can make my own decisions. And I just, I'm like, girl. I'm free. Remember this, remember this conversation, because mm-hmm. being 21, I can make my own issues. Sophia is, of course, like, you know, Jennifer's not far from that either. It's like, you guys can't be kidding. <laughs> Trust me. You, you, know, um, you, know, John, you know, John Wooden, you know, what a great guy. John Wooden says you really, um, how do you say it? It's what, you, it's what you learn after you know everything that really counts. That's, right. That's what he said. It's what you learn after you know everything that really counts. And I can remember being 22 thinking I'm got the rule by its tail, yeah. you know, and that's about what I had. It was dragging me all over the place. <laughs> but I got it. I got it. Last thing, we like benevolence. We like benevolence. I usually do not give you those big of a words. B-E-N-E-V-O-L-E-N-C-E. We like benevolence. We like things to be compassionate and kind. Big-heartedness, goodness, goodwill, charity, altruistic, human humanitarianism. That's a big word. That would be a Scrabble, like you'd score forever with Scrabble. Mm-hmm. Compassion. You know, and I, I've confessed it and I felt before, I'm not always as kind as I want to be. I want to be kinder. I want to be big-hearted. I want to be really big-hearted. And just not have it so my way all the time. Just die to self again and again. Verse 23, Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will... Meditate on your on your statutes. I'm not going to get all spun up when someone does me something bad, or they're plotting against me. You know that's what he said. You know the princes are plotting against me. I just kind of meditated on your statutes instead of trying to go fix the princes. That's what I want to think. You know, the right to be understood is one of the hugest rights that is the hardest for me to give up. The right to be understood. I want to. I want to. Even if I know that I'm necessarily maybe wrong in that situation, I want people to understand why I made the decision. 
Now, I realize it's the wrong decision, but let me just explain to you why I made that decision. <laughs> why I got there. Why I got there. So here's the logic behind it, you know, so you know that I'm not really an idiot. I didn't just, kick, you know, go off half-cocked, which I might have, but I've had time now to figure out, you know, what the justifications are on that. The right to be understood. Man, I'll, and we just need to just meditate on the statutes. Meditate on his word. Go back to his word. Go back to his word. And when you do that. You know, I've been going through something lately, and uh, I said to my husband something I heard years ago. Uh, you cannot explain yourself mm. because your friends don't need it and your enemies won't believe it. Mm. Mm. You know? So it, it, it's senseless to try to mm -hmm. explain yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You better know that you're following God. Yeah. And then he fights the battle. Yeah. That is, and that's exactly what it says right there. Their enemies are plotting against me. I'm just going to meditate on your statues. I'm not going to figure out the plan to defeat the enemy. No. Or the enemy. I'm not going to figure out the plan to defeat the enemy. I want to figure out the plan to know you more, Jesus. Yeah. Now, sometimes that look a lot alike. Yeah, but that motivation behind it is, I want to know you more, Jesus. I want to be transformed more like you, Jesus. I want to respond like you, Jesus. I want to think like you, Jesus. I want to know your word so that I just start thinking like you. You know? May, I don't know if anybody else, you know, aren't you, are you bilingual? Yeah. And so, what do you think, do you think in English, or do you think in Thai, or what do you think? English. English. And I remember when I was in Russia, I knew that I had kind of gotten to the point, because I would think sometimes in Russian. Yeah. I knew that I had started really grasping the Russian language. I don't think that way anymore. Trust me, <laughs> it's been 15 years now. But I thought in Russian. You know what? And I just want to start thinking like Jesus that I don't even, I don't have to like catch my, I don't have to take my thoughts captive. My thoughts are already captive. And I'm just already thinking that way. I'm just going like Jesus. I'm just going to respond in grace. I just read and then we'll close. Um, you guys have heard about um, Andres Galarraga and um, Joyce. Jeff Joyce, I think, is the umpire's name. You know, the perfect, the almost perfect game. Um, it was uh, the guy <coughs> In baseball, if uh, you know you fight, you only face 27 batters. It's considered a perfect game. No walks, no hits. You just made 27 guys got up, 27 guys got out, and that was it. Three outs and up and down. And so it was the bottom of the ninth inning. Um, the guy was facing batter number 27, and Andres Galarraga threw a pitch. He grounded at the first base. Um, Andres ran to first base to catch the throw from the first baseman. He caught the throw. It looked like he was a bang-bang play, but it looked like he was out, and the umpire called him safe. In that flash, he lost a perfect game. He lost a no-hitter. And they show, there's a show, shot in Sports Illustrated, and Andres Galarraga is walking away, and the umpire is off to the right, and, um, and he, uh, it's, you could just see him looking at him. And Andres Galarraga didn't say a word. He didn't say a word. He just walked away and got on the plate and got the 28th batter out. And Joyce went down to the locker room immediately afterwards and watched the replay, and he knew that he was wrong, and he had made a mistake. And he had just really robbed this guy. Of, there's, only been 22, there's only been 21 perfect games thrown ever in baseball history since 1850, 1860. And um, <clears throat> Andres Galarraga, or, or, or uh, Joyce, I mean, was just beside himself. He apologized, went up to the media, admitted he was wrong, he made a mistake, and he was just emotionally a wreck. Andres Galarraga went immediately downstairs to the umpire's room and um, went to him, and he just, and Andres Galarraga tells the story that he just, I mean, the guy just, he just started crying. He couldn't say anything. And he said, actually, in Spanish, he said, I'm sorry, because Andres Galarraga is from Venezuela. And Andres Galarraga said, 
I, I finally think it was something my parents taught me. He said, I was just so happy that it was such a great game and I was such in the zone. And it wasn't about being a stat book. But he called it the out. And even though I knew it was safe, I just turned and walked away. Because my mom had said, it really doesn't matter. And, um, and I thought, gosh. You know, and here's Joyce, devastated. He still was, you know, they did. And he still pitched a perfect game. He still pitched a perfect game. It might not be in the book. It might not be in the game, but he picked a perfect game. But Sports Illustrated, just this whole thread, that non-perfect, that non, that perfect non-perfect game will be the most remembered perfect game ever because of the impact that these two guys have had, admitting the mistakes. And then the next night, they, um, Andres Galarago, they were still in town with the same umpire crew. And Andres Galarago was the one who took the lineup out to home plate when they met the umpires. Joyce is still bawling. I mean, he's just really a great guy. Everybody said, of all the guys, it could have, you know. And, um, and he said, um, you know, and Andres Galarago patted him on the back. <laughs> it's okay, man. And he said, the umpire said, um, you know, later that day he went to catch a plane, go to the next city. And it was in Detroit, you know, and that's where he's from. I mean, that's where the, the home team is. Andres Colorado plays in Detroit. He's walking in the airport, and for the first time in the 33 years of playing baseball, he's being recognized. And a police officer says to him, you know, thank you. Thank you for doing the right thing. And, you know, one day we're going to get to heaven, and Jesus has given us great abundancy, and he's given us a perfect life, fully and available to us. And I want him to say, Thank you. Thank you for representing me well and not settling. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for today. Thank you for Christ. So blessed by the gift of salvation, Lord, that we can even comprehend who you are. Lord, I pray for the ladies in here. Lord, I pray that you would touch their hearts. Lord, I pray you touch my heart. Lord, that you reveal sin in our lives. Areas where we need to get right, Lord. Lord, I know if we're in this classroom, where most of us, and I know a lot of these ladies pretty well, we don't have the big stuff, Lord. Nobody's going to know. There's not going to be any headlines that are going to come out. We've got some sort of affair that we need to confess. But Lord, we've got bitterness, and we've got gossip, and we've got slander. We've got hardness of heart. We've got greediness. We've got gluttony. Lord, I just pray that you would reveal those things to us. Lord, that we would turn to you for transformation and for hope. And Lord, that you would say to us, well done. Well done. Thank you. Thank you for doing the right thing. Let's Amen. One last thing for everybody goes. Thank you so much for coming today. We love it when you're all here.